Do you have more pictures of your goats than yourself on your phone? Does your vacation time get spent attending goat shows? Can you have a conversation without bringing up dairy goats? Neither can we. So join us as we talk to the country's best breeders, judges, appraisers, and industry experts about all things dairy goats. We are John Kane and Danielle Caroli. Welcome to Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast. On this special Dairy Goat Awareness Week, we're sitting down with Dr. Katie Jackson, DVM from Kentucky, to talk about something herself as a dairy goat breeder and every breeder, big and small, deals with parasites. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Jackson. Thanks. Glad to be back. Super happy to have you here. Uh, for those that might be newer to the show, we've had you on before. Uh, can you just kind of like reintroduce yourself so people can be reacquainted? So I'm Dr. Katie Jackson. I'm currently based out of Kentucky. I grew up in West Virginia, kind of in the that tri-state Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia area, showing my goats there. Um, we moved to the farm when I was seven, um, started out with a couple of pygmies, and then I fell in love with the Oberhosley, and we kind of dipped our toes into a few other breeds over the years, had some Lamanches, some Sanas, but ultimately um, in 2016, I went back to primarily Oberhosley and then some Oberhosley experimentals as I kind of bred up the rest of the herd to be more part Oberhosley than anything else. So in 2021, I graduated from vet school and moved to Kentucky officially. I was in Kentucky for undergrad and then my master's degree before vet school. So I've been in the state for a while, but now finally getting my feet wet practicing for the last couple of years. And I'm in exclusively large animal practice, which is kind of fun because I get to see a good mix of equine and bovine. And I tend to get most of our small ruminants, pigs and poultry as well down here too. So always a challenge for sure. Oh, for sure. And also, congratulations on your new bundle of joy. That's really exciting. Thanks. Yeah, she's a lot of fun. I call her my little mini me. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> she's going to her first show this weekend, so <laughs> we'll see. Oh, how that that's goes. exciting. It's always yep. fun. How has kidding season gone for you personally and professionally? It's been pretty good. Um, I kept working, so I was due with Isabel January. And so I bred most of the herd of kid before then, figuring it'd probably be easier to deal with them while she's still in me rather than running around outside or, you know, being a baby on the outside. <laughs> and um, so I had a bunch of those kid in December and January after most of the group had just kitted in May. So it was kind of a quick turnaround, but they did pretty well for me. And then I had another group that kitted in end of February after I'd kind of gotten in the swing of being a new mom. And so that mostly was pretty good. There was one though that I actually induce all of mine and that works out really nicely for my schedule because then I can kind of be there when they're kidding. But I actually had one doe end of February that I induced for day 147 and that's always worked out well for me. But I think she had a later ovulation or something because there was one kid that was a preemie and by the time I got out to the barn and saw her, I thought we were going to lose her because she was cold and it was like 1 a.m. and I had to bring her into the barn and or bring her into the house and warm her up in cold water. So I was holding that kid in a tub of warm water and my husband was dealing with the crying baby and it was a little bit crazy. But um, after that, I mean, it's been smooth sailing ever since. All the does have done well and the kids have done well. 
haven't seen a whole lot of problems with the stoches other or you know getting problems in other people's herds other than your typical kids dead legs back heads back your usual kind of issues there no c-sections yeah. yet knock on wood knock on oh, wood please yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know we want to talk about parasites because this is one of our Dairy Goat Awareness Week episodes. I do want to talk about the farm ambassadors that I've seen you post on your Facebook. Was it you who got a few pictures and realized you had somebody greeting your delivery people? Oh, yeah. So one day I was expecting a FedEx package and I pulled up the delivery notification because they always send a picture to show where they left it. And I could see the top of one of my buck's heads in the picture and they are definitely not supposed to be out there. So that was exciting. I had my sister-in-law come over and she put them back for me, but we had fenced off a new area for them because we got there's a, a program called the County Ag Improvement Program. And so through that program, you can get money for new fencing and things like that. So we had a new area we'd fenced off, but the gates weren't quite right yet. And I'd kind of just let them out and hoped for the best. And they figured things out pretty quickly. So that was a nice surprise to see in the middle of the work day. <laughs> and it was probably quite a surprise for your FedEx person, too. Oh, I'm sure that buck that was in the picture is an overly friendly oversized buck i mean he's i think he's maybe six this year and yeah he has no personal space limitations so i'm sure that was quite fun <laughs> must be an oprah hosley oh yeah <laughs> oh my gosh that is great what a farm <laughs> greeter and he, i it's probably made his their day and they probably have it somewhere on their social media feeds like you know greet instead of the dog that attacks me i was greeted by this buck but so jumping in to the episode topic today, parasites, I really want to start this off by just going very big picture. And so when we say parasites in relation to dairy goats, what does that mean? So the definition of a parasite is any organism that lives on or in a host and gets its food from or at the expense of its host. So we can kind of broadly break that down into two major groups being external as well as internal parasites. External parasites are things like mites, lice, ticks, and flies. But I'm mostly going to talk today about internal parasites. So there's many of those, but the ones that we're mostly worried about are barbapole and coccidia. We also see tapeworm in, in goats, but they're most commonly parts of mixed infections. You can also have giardia, cryptosporidium, brown stomach worms, hookworms, whipworms, and others. But the main ones that I'm going to talk about are barbapole, coccidia, and I'm going to throw meningeal worm in there too. It's not something that we really classically think about with our internal parasites, but I see enough of it that I do think it's worth mentioning. A lot of people deal with all of those issues. Um, so what what are the common parasite issues that you have seen in both in practice and within your own herd? So the number one, not even close here in the southeast, is the barber pole worm, also known as Hamonchus contortus. Last summer was a particularly bad year for that here. We had a drought kind of in late June into early July, and then all of a sudden, as soon as all the grass had died off and I was feeding hay already, we had all this rain come through. And so you combine that lack of forage availability, that poor pasture with that sudden wet, warm weather, and you had yourself the perfect storm for a really bad parasite overload. 
And so even in some of my well-managed herds, I was seeing a lot of losses due to barber pole worm. Also see a lot of coccidia, especially in young stock that really haven't developed immunity to it. And, and especially in places that don't have good management practices in place yet. And then meningeal worm is probably the number three that I actually see a fair bit of here. Um, it's one that's kind of hard to definitively diagnose, but I end up treating for it quite a bit and have a number of cases that respond to that treatment. So I'll add it to the list as well. When people are thinking about parasites, especially some newer people, they might not know exactly what they are, or what the what, what issues they can cause. So when you're looking at coccidia, barber pole, and even menagel, what cause does that have on, on the go and issues it can cause? So the big picture that's happening there is these parasites are stealing nutrients from the host. And not only that, but they are creating damage as they go. So if you think about the barbopole worm, it takes up residence in the abomasum, which is what we call the true stomach in our ruminant species. And it basically slashes the abomasal wall and sucks up the blood that that creates. So as you're losing that blood, they can drink a fair bit of blood in a day. And that causes a great degree of anemia, also causes damage to the abomasum. And if you don't have red blood cells circulating, then you lose pretty much all of your functions. You might see goats that kind of act lethargic or maybe they're losing interest in eating. They just don't really seem to have the energy. By the time I see them, because their eyelids are white, a lot of times they're kind of stumbling around into things just because they don't have red blood cells circulating to provide oxygen to those muscles. In coccidia, we see a lot of damage within the gastrointestinal tract, especially the small intestine that causes bleeds. And so in coccidia, you might see diarrhea. So you might see, we call it a bloody diarrhea or melana, where that digested blood makes it into the feces. And that can cause damage to the GI tract and slow down the growth, and especially kids. We don't see it quite as often in adults. They usually just kind of carry the coccidia and don't necessarily have clinical disease from it. But especially in kids, you'll see that slow growth, just kind of that general unthriftiness. And then the meningeal worm, that's kind of an interesting one because it's one that's not necessarily naturally found in goats. It's really a worm that lives primarily in the deer population. And the deer shed that worm and it's picked up by snails, which then the goats grazing on snail tracks will end up picking that worm, picking up that worm. It gets into the stomach and realizes it's not in the deer, for lack of better terms, kind of gets lost and ends up in the spinal cord. And so we call that aberrant migration. And as it goes through the spinal cord, it doesn't really have a direction in particular that it's going, but as it moves, it creates a lot of damage. And so the clinical signs that you'll see are usually neurological, but sometimes itchiness or hair loss. And those are due to the damage that it causes within the spinal cord itself. That's such an interesting way to describe meningeal worm, just the path, because we've dealt with it here. And I always know, okay, it goes, it gets ingested and then it goes into the spinal cord, but never really quite thought about the process or what it was doing in the spinal cord to cause those neurological issues. And to just kind of think about it that way, and the way you just put it, that it's just basically lost and just causing a mess is such a cool visual thing to picture in terms of that. So that's really interesting. A lot of my equine clients actually might be familiar with EPM, 
which is spread through possum feces. And that's another parasite that kind of causes similar problems in horses, uh, protozoan. So I kind of, if anyone's familiar with horses, it's really a similar process. You mentioned it quickly about how you would see the goats whose eyelids were white. That just shows that they were severely anemic. One of the tools that is pushed or marketed or touted as a good, useful tool for measuring worm load is the Fomantia scorecard. What does that effectively tell us something is up and that then requires treatment? But also, when is that going to fail us? So the Fomantia score, just to introduce it, it's a five-point scale and you can take a class to get Fomantia certified. You'll get this fancy little card that's got these different shades of red to pink to white on it. And you can hold that up to the eyelid to give your goat a Fomantia score. And that scores from one to five. So the way I kind of remember that scale is five is fatal. So five is your, your sheet white kind of color. And one is your nice dark red. Most animals are going to lie kind of somewhere in the middle, about two to four. And so... The problem with that one is it's only going to work for worms that are depleting the animal of blood. So think about especially barber pole worm where they're just consuming so much blood. Not as much coccidia, even though they are, are causing blood loss in a sense. I don't really tend to see as much of a Fomacha score issue on those animals. But the other thing to think about is occasionally a poor Fomacha score can be caused by other issues. So think about a bleeding abomasal ulcer. I've seen that, especially in young kids and calves that might be too young to even get parasites. And some animals also just run pale. So occasionally you'll have an animal that might have a poor Fomacha score and maybe they're just older and for whatever reason, just on the paler side or at the very least kind of blanch out in those eyelids as you're checking them, maybe due to stress or something. So that's kind of where it has its limitations for sure. But it is the primary thing that I tend to use when assessing the parasite status of an animal, especially as it relates to barber pool worm, which is my big concern around here. Would you say that that's your main way to tell if they're anemic or not? I'm, I'm assuming because you're out in the field, you don't have time to like take a fecal, go back, take a look at the fecal under a slide, and then go back to the farm and treat. It's more of a, well, since you're out here, let's treat them anyway. Yeah, it kind of depends on the situation. So a lot of times I'll use that Fomantia score as a quick estimate. And for sure, if it's a four or five, if they're really light colored, I'll go ahead and treat them. And then if they're threes, it just kind of depends on what else they have going on. So if they're showing me other clinical signs, like maybe they have diarrhea or they've got a really poor hair coat or say if she just kidded and I know that she's probably going to have an egg rise right around the time that she kids. Um, I'm going to go ahead and treat animals like that. Animals that are maybe threes and don't have a whole lot going on, say that they're just your backyard pet and not really under a lot of stress or anything or production demands or for sure animals that are ones or twos, I'm still going to run fecals before I jump to treating them. Why is that? So if they have a one or a two, they probably don't have a whole lot of blood sucking parasites going on. And we're starting to get really concerned about the development of resistance in these parasite populations. And some of that Uh is due to producers just kind of throwing whatever drugs they see on the tractor supply shelf at these animals. And if you don't really know what you're doing with them, it's really easy for these parasites to evolve and just no longer be susceptible to these drugs. 
So because of that, I really try to kind of limit what animals I treat. And I only treat animals if they really look like they need it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I want to kind of expand a little bit here. Say, you know, A lot of dairy goat producers, a lot of them kind of do the vet care themselves or it's self-administered. Like you said, they go to track supply to get whatever they need. And this includes, you know, them pulling their own blood for blood testing to send out and uh, learning how to do fecals. When you are looking at fecals, do you have any tips for helping diagnose what you're seeing or make sure, you know, making sure you are accurately counting what you are seeing in the slide? Sure. So I'll kind of preface this with, I know it's kind of hard to explain stuff like this on audio. So there's a website mm -hmm. that I use a lot called wormx.info. That's the American Consortium for Small Ruminant Parasite Control website. And they have a lot of good resources, mostly geared towards producers. And so there's some handouts and things like that on there that go through exactly how to make your own fecal, how to even make your own solution to be able to do the fecal, where to buy the McMaster slide, which is a gridded slide that you can use to actually be able to do counts instead of just looking at eggs as if you didn't have grids on a slide. Um, so I'll start with throwing that resource out there. That's a really good place to be able to find a lot of information. But I also like to use a bubble to be able to get a microscope into focus. I try to kind of minimize the number of bubbles on the slide, but you're still going to get one or two here or there. And then once you're in focus, you need to be able to tell the difference. So bubbles will be clear and kind of bright in the middle. And worm eggs are going to kind of be textured looking and darker in the center. And when in doubt, if you've got kind of a fancier microscope, you can measure the egg. And there's not a whole lot of variation in the egg sizes in these different um, worm species. I will say that there's kind of three main parasite categories. We call it the hot complex, which is um, Homonchus, Ostratagia, and Trichostrongulus. Those three species all have really similar looking eggs that it's pretty much impossible to tell apart. But that's for the most part okay because Homonchus is the main one that we care about, which is barber pole worm. And they all are susceptible to the similar treatments and usually occur in mixed infections anyways. So don't usually need to tell those apart, but you're going to see significant differences in sizes between that, those hot complex eggs, coccidia, and tapeworm eggs. So you can always kind of measure them to get a good idea. And all that info can be found on the chart that I kind of referenced on that wormex.info site too. The other thing is, are there things we're going to see that you're only going to really see with symptoms or are there things that we shouldn't be seeing that people tend to think they're seeing? I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, sure. So sometimes you might see like mite eggs and things like that. And we don't usually worry about that. So if you see something on a fecal where you're like, I have no idea what this is, there's a high probability that it's not what's causing problems in your animals. And so it might just be some kind of incidental finding. But with that said, there's a few that you're just not going to find or not likely to find on fecal. So meningeal worm, for example, since it doesn't actually have most of its light cycle in the GI tract, you're not really going to see that one on fecal. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. there's not a good test for it. Other than in vet school, they talked about pulling a sample of cerebrospinal fluid and looking for eosinophils. But, I mean, even that's kind of hard to do sometimes, especially in the field. 
and you can definitively diagnose it at postmortem if you end up losing the animal. But even then, I mean, you're looking for a little tiny tract and this big, long spinal cord. And just because they don't see it on postmortem doesn't mean that's not what was causing the clinical signs. So meningeal worm can be a super tricky one to diagnose. I actually end up using what I call a shotgun approach for that one, where if I see a goat with neurological signs, I'm probably going to throw a bunch of stuff at them and just kind of see what sticks because there's not really a whole lot of harm in treating for meningeal worm. It's a huge dose of safeguard but in five days of treating them, but at the same time, I'd rather go ahead and hit it hard and hit it early so that we hopefully minimize the amount of damage done. Lungworms are another one. Um, they're pretty easy to miss on fecal just because of the way the life cycle of that parasite is. You can use a Behrman technique, which is where you kind of suspend the feces in water in a cloth and the larvae have to work their way out of there. But even with that, you can still have false negatives. Bronchial or lavage, where you kind of wash the parasites out of the bronchioles themselves, is theoretically can be done, but honestly, nobody really does that one either. And then cryptosporidium and giardias and protozoa, those are kind of spotty. You may or may not see them on fecals. And like I said, all those intestinal roundworms, that hot complex, they all kind of look alike. So you'll see them on fecal, but you won't necessarily be able to say, okay, this is definitely barbicle worm. You just kind of take your best guess based on clinical signs too. When would you say, you know, after taking a look at fecals, like when, if there's like, some eggs here and there because obviously a lot of goats are going to have some sort of load right when yep. when would you be concerned with an animal and look for treatment like what level before you're like oh crap we're like we need to warm this goat so it can be kind of hard just based on fecal so i mean some folks will say if you have over 500 eggs per gram go ahead and treat them but honestly some of these animals can do just fine with a high worm burden so some of the other things that I'll think about is, is this animal showing us clinical signs to show that it needs treatment? If I have a really high worm load, I might want to treat it anyways, just so that I'm not shedding that amount of eggs into my pasture. But in general, I'm going to use that information in combination with the clinical signs as well as FAMACHA scores. So FAMACHA scores of one to two, I just about always leave them alone unless, say I did a fecal on them too and they had a really high load, I'd probably go ahead and treat them. But generally ones and two FAMACHA scores, I'm going to leave alone. And threes, which are kind of in the middle, really depend on other factors. What's their current disease status? So are they showing me any clinical signs such as, say, a rough hair coat, loose stools, leth lethargy? Um, any kind of decreased amount of production. Did this goat just kid? Is she lactating? Because that's another stressor on her. So those are things I'm going to take into consideration when I'm looking at a three FAMACHA score, which are kind of on that borderline threshold. And then fours and fives, I'll pretty much always treat. Even if I don't see anything in the fecal, I'll usually go ahead and treat them, especially if I see other clinical signs, just because that's an animal that's at a critical level of being low in their red blood cell supply. So it's usually best to go ahead and treat those, especially if you've also got other clinical signs. When in doubt, you can kind of also run a PCV or a packed cell blood volume. And you can quantify those red blood cells and kind of see where the animal is actually at. Because sometimes FAMACHA can be a little bit tricky depending on the lighting. A little pro tip, sometimes I'll actually look at both eyelids because the lighting might be a little bit different on both sides of the animal. 
So sometimes I'll go ahead and kind of pull down both eyelids and maybe move their head around to see, okay, am I really seeing what I think I'm seeing? But when in doubt, like I said, you can always pull blood and get a packed cell volume on that animal to see if they're as bad as you think they are. That, that is a good tip because I've had some where I'm like, man, you're, you're, um, you're on the borderline here. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's a really great trip. Let's talk about treatment since we have a vet on here to actually talk about it. Obviously, uh, we're going to be talking in a general sense, but if you have a client experiencing issues, what is your typical uh, recommendation for treatment? What kind of plan are you giving them? And is it a multiple dewormers or repeat dosage? What do you usually throw at them? So for barber pole worm, which, like I said, is the main one that I'm worried about around here, I'll do it's called a double dewormer protocol. And that's currently what's recommended by that ACSRP, um, that American Consortium for Small Ruminant Parasite Control Program, they're recommending deworming with two different classes of dewormers. So your macrocyclic lactones or your ivermectins and cydectins, and then something like a white wormer like valbazin or safeguard. So usually the one I'll reach for is kind of the hardest hitting, and that'll be cydectin and valbazin. Obviously, you're not supposed to use valbazin in early pregnancy animals, so I might reach for a safeguard-type product instead of valbazin in those cases. But pretty much always, I'm going to be doing that double deworming protocol. I'll usually throw in a copper oxide wire particle, too. That's something for sure to talk to your vet about, because especially if you're already feeding loose minerals or doing multi-min or something like that, you want to kind of be aware of what level of copper these animals are at. But there's been some evidence to suggest that those copper oxide wire particles, once they get into the abomasum, they can physically pierce that barber pole worm. And so that's a way that we can kind of kill off some of those worms without contributing to resistance to some of our chemical dewormers. And if those animals are really, really bad off and they're off feed, I'll add in some supportive care like some dexamethasone, some B vitamins, probiotics. And then I'll give them some red cell too, just to kind of throw a little bit of iron at them and help them build that red blood cell supply back up. Coccidia, they're a little bit different. My big thing on those guys is just primarily prevention and trying to keep those levels low to begin with. So keeping your environment clean, which we'll talk about a little bit later, um, decox in their feed, or else you can do calf pro in their bottles, things like that. So I usually kind of err on the side of trying to get those kids on some kind of coccidiostat program. There's a few questionably legal treatment options out there. Um, really, the only ones that are unquestionably legal are going to be those five-day protocols. So Corid's a good example. And then Tultrazeril and Panazeril are kind of some questionable ones. So Marquis, which is Panazeril, is actually a legal option for coccidia if you can prove resistant to other products that are already approved for food animals. Tultrazeril, on the other hand, which is a metabolite of panazeril or other compounded products similar to it, are not going to be legal because food animals are not allowed to use compounded products. So that might be why if you talk to your vet about what options they want you to have, um, some of them probably aren't going to let you have tultrazeril because that kind of puts their license on the line. But depending mm -hmm. on what your situation is, they might let you do panazeril. So coccidia, I would definitely recommend talking to your vet, see what's working in your area and kind of what their recommendations are. And then meningeal worm, once again, kind of a whole different situation. I use a five-day protocol of high-dose femendazole. So that's the one choice, one place where I will reach for a safeguard. 
And I'll usually do also do an initial dose of Cydectin or Ivermectin as well. But that five-day dose of Safeguard is the important thing because that's what's going to cross the blood-brain barrier and actually take care of that parasite as far as killing it. We've also got to think about managing the inflammation that that worm's created as it's moving through that spinal cord. Because even though we kill the parasite, if we don't keep down the inflammation, it's going to be kind of hard for that animal to recover well. So I'll usually also do DEX if they're not pregnant and probably meloxicam, as well as other supportive care like B vitamins. Those B vitamins work amazing. I had a doe with meninja and, or at least it was either meninja or some kind of spinal injury. Mm -hmm. And so we treated her for meninja. We treated her, gave her dex too, because if it was an injury, dex is going to help regardless anyway. But it left her with a little bit of damage to her back end and somebody actually caroline lawson from tlc farms had posted that she had had a doe recover after treatment and basically what she started to do was do a high dose of a b12 and it was like an oral b12 that she could get at a health food store and it was just giving that every day until the bottle ran out and it was cherry flavored so it works really well. They they like it. And it was pretty quick, the recovery. And so it's always just kind of amazing. I mean, you talked about red cell and the, the, the different supplemental things that you can do to help these animals recover. Yep. And I kind of think um, that's half the fun in developing these treatment plans is kind of thinking, okay, how many different aspects can I hit this from? And I love throwing B vitamins at pretty much any sick ruminant, because if you think about where B vitamins are synthesized, it's in the rumen. And if you've already got a sick animal, your rumen's probably not going to be super happy to begin with. So I'm always a big fan of supplementing those B vitamins. I have a question about ivermectin, because I see it all the time on these these goat vet help groups, right? It's the best way to give it, inject or down the throat? Definitely orally. So... That's where we're going to get the highest availability in that GI tract is if we drench these animals. And I will actually uh-huh. recommend using the products that are meant for drenching. So I know some folks will use like Cydectin poron orally or they'll get the injectable Cydectin and give it orally because it's not such a huge volume. But those oral products are formulated for a reason and they do best in the right. GI tract out of all those possible options that you have. So I'll always recommend an oral formulation the other thing to think about is these goats are technically food animals. We may not be eating them, but we're drinking their milk a lot of times. And even if we're not doing either of those, they are technically food animals. And so we need to be kind of aware of what regulations there are. And so if we're using a product that's different than the way it's labeled, it might not be a legal option. And you've also got to think about all your withdrawal times. So there's another mm-hmm. website I'll throw out there. FARAD or the Food Animal Residue Avoidance Database, that's a good resource to be able to look up some of your withdrawal times. And far and away, the shortest withdrawal times that you'll have are for those products that are meant to be given orally if you give this orally. So if you go off label and you're giving that pour on product orally, it's going to have a much longer withdrawal time than the one that's meant to actually be given orally. So that's something else to kind of think about when you're trying to decide which product to use is both the legality and then also some of the withdrawal times that you might be facing. 
I think it's hilarious that people use injectables and you know shove it down a goat's throat. I accidentally tasted and felt the bite of ivermectin <laughs> um, with a fighting yearling. And let me tell you, first, yes, it does thing. Those Nigerians that are rolling around and screaming, I was doing the same thing. And secondly, <laughs> it tastes terrible. So you, you definitely use those medications the way they're supposed to. I'm glad that you you laid that to rest. Yep. I will <laughs> say even um, I've when giving the Quest Plus pace, which is Cydectin, the horses, well, it's Quest Plus pace is the same drug as Cydectin, it's Moxidectin. Um, one time I made the mistake of taking the cap cap off with my mouth and they're supposed to be apple flavored i think that was quite the bitter apple <laughs> so yeah definitely would not recommend actually taking any of these wormers even if they're meant to be given orally we mentioned it earlier the resistance is obviously a big concern for these use of these medications especially actually i know you mentioned it in southern states how do we manage or prevent resistance to certain drugs the, the big thing that we need to do is just kind of minimize exposure. So we need to minimize contact between the manure and the feed because manure is ultimately where most of those parasite eggs are going to end up and where those infected larvae are going to hatch and end up. So we want to minimize contact between manure and feed, feet and feed. Goats are really bad about wanting to put those feet in their feeders. So we need to be able to design our facilities such that they really can't do that. We've got to keep that hay off the ground. I see so many producers that just kind of throw the hay on the ground and let the goats lay in it and then eat whatever they want. Well, they're also pooping in that hay when you do that. And so if we can design a hay feeder, first of all, if you can design a hay feeder that's no waste for goats, let me know because you're going to be a millionaire and everybody's (laughs) going to want to buy it. But we really want to be able to keep those goats from getting their feet or their manure into that hay. So things like cattle panels around a round bale where they can reach their head in and pull hay out or eat it while their head's in there. Things like reaching through a feeding panel along the outside of a pen to eat some of their hay. Anything that's going to keep that hay both off the ground, keep their feet out of it, as well as keep them from pooping in it is really the route that we want to go. Also, pasture management is important. So if you do have an area where your goats can go out and get pasture, Make sure that if that pasture is not long enough, say over six inches, you're providing hay for those animals because we want to minimize those animals overgrazing. That's not only going to damage your pasture if you allow them to overgraze, but the closer they have to graze to that ground, the closer their mouth's going to get to where the species are and to where those barber pole larvae are going to be. Another thing to kind of think about is maybe copper bolusing, which I mentioned earlier. Make sure you work with your vet on doing that one. Keep kids separate from adults if you can. Kids aren't going to have the same immune system that adults are, and so they're going to be more likely to pick up those parasites than adults. And even within your kid group, try to keep your kid groups kind of close in age. So try to not have six-month-old kids along with one-month-old kids, just because they're going to have different susceptibilities to those parasites. And I'll tell a quick story to kind of tell you about um, just how bad the resistance problem's getting to be. I had a call a couple of years ago where a producer had an animal that was sick. It was, I think, a fairly young doe, maybe two or three years old, that had diarrhea and just wasn't acting right. Went out there and her eyelids were white. And so I went ahead and treated her. But I said, hey, while we're out here, let's go ahead and do some FAMACHA scores on these other animals and kind of see where we're at. 
well, most of their herd had pretty terrible FAMACHA scores. And so we went ahead and ended up treating most of those animals. A few days later, I got a call back that another one of their goats was sick with similar signs. By the time I got out there that afternoon, that animal had died. And I actually went ahead and did a necropsy with the owner's permission, which is where you open up the animal and try to figure out what happened. And even though that animal had just been treated with that double dewormer protocol, and I'd already done that copper bolusing in this herd, I opened up its abomasin, and there were still a lot of live barber pole worms floating around in there, just kind of oh. wiggling around on that wall. And yeah, it was gross, but really cool. But at the same time, really eye-opening and kind of terrifying at exactly what kind of resistance problem we're facing especially in herds that maybe haven't been using dewormers correctly, or maybe they've gotten animals from a herd that hasn't been using them correctly. So we've got a really serious resistant problem out there. And so it's important to kind of look at other ways we can kind of manage or prevent parasites. There's a few other alternatives to chemical dewormers. So tannins or things like that can actually work pretty good. Lespediza in certain amounts can work to reduce worm load. And then there's a new-ish product out there called BioWorma that you can actually give through the feed or um, just as a supplement. And that one's kind of cool because it actually will sort of develop a fungus that wraps itself around the parasite eggs and keep them from hatching and spreading. And I've heard great oh, wow. kind of anecdotal stories about that one. It's kind of expensive, so maybe in larger herds it might not be super practical, but if it becomes available, I haven't checked lately to see if it's available. Last I looked, it wasn't, it was on back order, but it's something that I've been trying to recommend to some of my smaller herds, like that one that I just talked about, where you don't really have a whole lot of other options at this point. I'll kind of yeah. add that there's not a lot of evidence behind most of the herbal warmers beyond those tannins and that lespediza that I mentioned. I know some folks use them and don't have problems, but there's not really a lot of studies to back them up. And there's quite a few that kind of show that there's no real difference between herbal wormers and no treatments at all. So I'm not quite really go willing to go for most of those just yet when we have so many commercial products that for the most part, if you use them correctly, we at least see some effectiveness in as long as you're kind of being careful with what you're doing. What about diatomaceous earth? That one um, is kind of along the lines of the herbal wormers. I haven't seen a whole lot of success out of that one either or evidence behind it, but once again, I've heard of a few herds that use it with some success. So if they have luck with that, then I guess go for it because it's less resistance developing to our other warmers. You mentioned, obviously, trying to keep age groups as far as kids go, you know, keeping them with their own age group and not putting them with senior does or whatever. Have you seen any other facility type improvements besides hay feeders and such that people can make to help kind of limit it. Maybe, I don't know, I don't know if like barn lime helps putting down before you put bedding down. Like, I, is there like anything else that you can think of that somebody might be able to do to kind of help mitigate it? Yeah, so things like lime can help. The other thing is just kind of keeping those pens clean. So uh, there's a lady that I lived with during vet school that actually had a concrete area where all of her kids lived and she would sweep it out every day. And her kids did fantastic. And I think a lot of that was because on that concrete and keeping those species off that concrete before the larvae can really hatch, you really didn't have much of a problem for fecal contamination. So things like that are a good option. Keeping those pens cleaned out. 
minimizing contact between those feet and those feeders. I know those kids love to put their feet in the feeders, but figuring out ways to keep them from doing things like that can really go a long way. I don't know if we really mentioned it in that situation where you had those animals that you saw one was sick and then you started looking at the others. Should you treat the whole herd or do you only treat the individuals who are showing symptoms? What's your recommendation for that? So this is one of those things I think if you ask different people, you'll probably get different answers. My general preference is to never deworm the whole herd at the same time, unless you really don't have a choice. So in the case of that herd where they're all super anemic, had rough hair coats, things like that, I didn't feel like I had a whole lot of choice. But in my herd, for example, I'll usually kind of go through and I might FAMACHA score the whole herd and then go through and deworm everybody that actually needs it. So a lot of times I'll leave individual animals untreated because I want to leave a population called refugia. And that's a parasite population that's not seen the dewormer that we're using that day. So if you can maintain your refugia population, those are going to be worms that are still hopefully susceptible to the drugs that you're using. And so the larger the percentage of your worms on your pasture that are still susceptible to your drugs, the better. At the same time, you don't really want a whole heavy load of worms being shed on your pasture. So if you've got heavy fecal shedders, that's kind of something to think about too. And maybe we're doing those fecals kind of in combination with homogenous flooring might come into consideration. Is is that kind of like, and this is like so redneck of me to make this analogy, but <laughs> is, it, is it kind of like, you know, they say, oh, if you kill the entire pack of coyotes, you know, you're going to have a smarter group younger group, stronger group move in. Is that kind of like you don't want to warm them all at the same time because only the resistant ones are going to be left. So they're going to like, you know, there's not going to be anything susceptible. So the resistance is going to take over and then now you have a whole nother issue. Yeah, it's biologically a really similar kind of concept. So say you were to deworm your entire herd all at the same time, the you're going to kill off, hopefully, you know, 95 to 99% of your worms, but some are going to survive. You're never going to be able to kill 100% of your worms. And so that small percentage that survives, they're going to be the ones that are resistant to your wormers for whatever reason, usually some gene that they have that kind of perpetuates that resistance. And so then that population is going to reproduce. And most likely the ones that are left from that, the ones that are reproduced, are going to be resistant as well because they've kind of passed on those genes. And so if you can not deworm all of them at the same time, then that'll leave some susceptible or hopefully susceptible parasites still within the herd. And they'll kind of be a larger percentage of that overall worm burden that you've got on your pasture. And how do we tell when we have a resistance issue? That's where I'll advocate doing the, we call them fecal egg count reduction tests. So ideally, you go ahead and take a fecal sample before you deworm, even the day that you deworm before you get the wormer, and see kind of what your fecal load is. And there's a way to kind of quantify that. You can find the handout on that wormx.info website that really goes through the math pretty thoroughly. But ultimately, you're doing a fecal egg count on that day, and then say two weeks later to see kind of what your fecal level is after you've treated these animals. And so after you've treated them, obviously you want that amount to go down. 
because hopefully your dewormer is going to have some amount of effectiveness. So the lower that reduction is, if you still got a pretty similar amount of eggs afterwards, then you're going to be able to quantify that you've got a resistance problem. Before I have Danielle wrap this up, and this isn't on the list of our uh, notes here, but I know it's it's going to come up, and I dealt with it earlier this year. People, especially coming out of winter and into spring, see a jump in mites. And we're, so let's talk about those external parasites real quick. Sure. Um, everybody deals with mites, especially if you're like buying bagged pine shavings. It seems like those tend to have a lot of mites within those bags. Uh, what is a good preventative and what's a good treatment option for those animals? So those are really hard to prevent because like you said, they can kind of pick them up from everywhere and they spread throughout the herd. So I mm -hmm. kind of have a saying, all goats have lice or mites until proven otherwise or treated. <laughs> and so if I'm ever in doubt about an animal's hair coat, I'll usually go ahead and just treat them for lice with a product like Ultra Boss or Silence. And if I treat one, I end up treating the entire herd, even if I'm not seeing signs out of every animal just because I figure even if they're not showing signs, they might be harboring a low level of that parasite. So I pretty much always go ahead and treat the whole whole herd against those external parasites. I'll add in also that some folks will use injectable ivermectin to control lice and mites, and that's not really recommended anymore. Just because, as we talked about, these parasites are getting so resistant to the products that we have if we use them at a low level like that, especially injectably, where it's not going to be such a high level in the abomasum to kill those internal parasites, that just low level exposure is going to just cause more resistance. So I strongly recommend those topical products like Ultra Boss or like Silence to take care of any of your external parasite problems. I've also found that um, I, I'm going to just murder this word. Uh, Permethrin spray is that right? Yeah, Permethrin. Um, yeah, yeah. I've I've used that in the past and saw success. And I've actually started spraying like bedding with it. Uh, before when I you know open it up, and you know knock on wood, I haven't. It's been I I just treated these animals two months ago when they started getting mites, but I haven't had an issue since. So you know knock on wood, but I, I think that might help. I don't know. Maybe it's just for my own sanity. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, that probably does help. Daniel, did you want to expand on anything else before we wrap up? <laughs> no, but I was just laughing for Katie because it was like, oh, this and this and this. And I'm just picking <laughs> your brain th throughout the whole entire episode. And we're so appreciative of that. Yeah, no problem. It's been fun. <laughs> so to wrap that up, what would you say is your ultimate advice for listeners if they only take one thing away from this episode they're overwhelmed by all of this or they're just kind of listening while they're doing chores and this is like the moment that they have to listen and take this advice sure so i'll kind of sum it up in a couple points so parasite resistance is becoming a significant issue and we really need to make sure that our management strategies are sustainable so we need to make sure that our deworming and our coccidia control are based on current recommendations it's really important to have a vet that you can work with because they're going to know your area and the drugs. I see so many producers that'll go to the feed store and get a product that's labeled for goats. 
And then by the time they come to me, it's because they're losing animals because that product's not working for them. I know it can be kind of hard to find a good goat vet. And even then, not all goat owners are going to have a good relationship with that vet because say that vet's super busy and has a hard time getting out to see goats. And it can just be kind of challenging to develop that relationship. But make sure you take the time to do that. It's a two-way street. So know that now more than ever, it's important, especially with those antibiotic regulations coming up and the the prescriptions that are going to be needed and the current veterinary shortage. Make sure you've got a really good working relationship with a veterinarian. And I'm sure that even though a lot of vets aren't willing to see goats all the time, or maybe it's just kind of hard for them to get them into their schedule. Most vets are really wanting to learn and try to do right by these animals. I mean, that's why we went to vet school is to help animals. So even if a vet can't make it out, most of them are willing to kind of consult with you, especially if you've got an established relationship where they've been out to your farm before. And I'll also continue to kind of push those two websites that I mentioned, that wormx.info website. It's just got so much great resources on there and so many current recommendations. And there's just so many articles that are super helpful that are kind of geared towards producers and really break things down quite nicely. And then also the food animal residue avoidance database is another good resource to be able to find withdrawal times for these products that we might be using. I think that this is going to be an episode that everybody is screaming about how awesome this is. So I'm really thankful for you taking out time of your busy schedule uh, to offer the listeners some really great information. Dr. Katie Jackson, if people wanted to find you on the interwebs or your herd, where would they find you? They can find my website at whiterockfarm.com or our Facebook page is White Rock Farm WV, even though the herd's now mostly in Kentucky. My parents still have some in West Virginia, so farm page is still White Rock Farm WV for now. And you can also just look me up on Facebook, Katie Jackson, if you need to just send me a message about anything. Well, everybody, this has been Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast. I'm John. And I'm Danielle. And we'll see you guys tomorrow for another episode of Dairy Goat Awareness Week. Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast, is not an affiliate of the American Dairy Goat Association. All opinions or information regarding the ADGA does not represent the registry.